Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. My guest this week is Tony Martin. Tony is uh, one of the head honchos at Celestial Drones, creating Sky Theatre uh, using an abundance of drones and some very, very sophisticated software. We go into the details of how they're about to change the game in uh, signage and in the touring musical world and the art space in general. Uh, we talk about when he was the president of Sony Europe on a six-figure salary with uh, drivers and assistants and, and the crazy kind of lifestyle that that brings. Uh, but before that, we talk about him being Nick Cave's sound uh, and lighting engineer. We talk about his time with a uh, art rock um, German outfit type thing. We talk about... Uh, his time uh, hanging out with everyone at Factory Records. We talk about the textural sophistication of Billie Eilish's debut album. And the rest is really a freewheeling chat. Um, Tony has lived a incredible rock and roll life, um, highs and lows. Uh, we talk about um, driving through France at 3am in a, uh, a pickup truck to go in, uh, like a tow truck to go and recover... Um, a, a camper van from a sort of a, a failed or abandoned business venture. There's all kinds of things in this podcast. Um, I thought it was really cool. Uh, what a life story. So yeah, without further ado, here it is, Tony Martin. So yeah, obviously, what we're talking about here is is celestial, which is your um, your your like you said your startup, which is about sort of sky. What would you call it? Sky theater. Uh, what's what's the sort of the word wording that you're using? What do I think celestial is? That's changed since we started the company. Uh, we coined this phrase early on, which is you know welcome to sky theater. We we wanted to create a new. Uh, entertainment paradigm, right? We wanted to be somewhere in between, you know, a fireworks display, a music event, a gig, an artistic kind of piece. You know, we wanted to create art in the sky. And one of the kind of watch watchwords or one of the sentences we always, you know, talk about is like drawing down the stars from the night sky to create a shared sense of wonder. <laughs> so we want to, yeah, that's that's kind of one of the phrases that we keep re, what, rolling out over and over again. So we, we wanted to uh, create something new that is technology-enabled but creativity-led. And, um, and so when we're talking to new clients, you know, there are a few other companies in the world right now that can do drone displays that not many, but there are, there are quite a few, uh, when you look at it as a, on a global basis. But actually, when you think about what we do, we always talk about being creatively led and, you know, kind of narrative led. Um, and that we are a collection of creatives that are enabled by technology, as opposed to what we think some of our competitors do, which is kind of being led by technology and, oh, you know. So one of the things we've always st tried to steer clear of is something we call logo wear. And logo wear is where a, 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 a drone company will just put up basically the client logo in the air and maybe a few words and, 
you know, or or maybe they'll just go for a world record. Maybe they'll put three thousand drones up in the air or, or whatever, right? Mm. So we're not about that. We what we want to do is be evocative. We want to uh, leave a lasting impression. We want to give people a reason to super distribute via social media and other and other mechanisms. You know what they have seen, and you can only do that if you touch people emotionally, right? As opposed to just you know a VW logo in the sky. That's that's not really very uh, compelling. We don't think. No, it seems a bit, it's like a, a bit cheap and it's like lazy PR stunting, isn't it? It's just a bit like, yeah. That was an interesting phrase that you used then, super distributing. Is that, uh, don't be afraid to use all the jargon and the lingo in this because, I, you know, I'm going to ask you about it. I want to learn about it. Tell me what, what super distributing is. It's basically, I guess, it's free PR, isn't it? Well, super distribution is um, is giving people sufficient incentive because of the quality of the work or the level of engagement for them to be able to share it with their friends. So, you know, that, that can be via social media or it can be down at the pub or it can be, you know, writing a letter to the Times. It can be anything. All of those things in concert are super distribution. And uh, it's a phrase that we coined a long time ago in, in, in at Sony Music uh, when we were kind of developing the new technology strategy for, for that record label. And it's something that's just stayed with me. And it kind of goes beyond just social media. It's just everything to do. It's that incentive to tell the story on your behalf and on your client's behalf. Right. Interesting. So we're touching on a few things here, and I uh, and I think maybe we should rewind and build our way up to it. So tell me, tell me where where did you grow up? What was it like when you were? What was your sort of dream and aspiration when you sort of, when you were young? I had a really weird uh, kind of upbringing. Uh, I was uh, I was adopted by my dad's parents. I was adopted by my grandparents on my father's side, and um, you know that. Uh, and I grew up in Torquay. So, uh, and I'm, and I'm also <laughs> just saying the word. Yeah. Yeah. I've played in Torquay and yeah. And Have seen, you? I, okay. Yeah. I, you go, I go to Torquay to see things, <laughs> see things happen. I, I, honestly, it drove, drove me crazy. Anyway, look, the thing is I, I was brought up by old people, bless them. They did. They did as good a job as they could possibly do. But when I got to my mid-teens, that was very frustrating. I was in various punk bands cause that's the age I am, you know, so tell me about 19- these punk bands. Yeah, well, in 1976, I was, you know, I was 16 years old. You were not 16 in 19... Sorry, 15, 15 years old. You were 15 in 1976. Yeah. So, uh, and actually, Andy, you know, we we sort of laugh at Torquay, but actually at that point in time, Torquay was actually on the gig circuit. And it was, the Torquay Town Hall was a kind of a 2000... Uh, standing audience venue, right? Right. That's quite a nice club size. So... You'd have Buzzcocks, you'd have Sex Pistols, you'd have The Damned, you'd have all of those bands uh-huh. coming to play. And it was a, a girlfriend of mine's dad who was the promoter. Right. So that was amazing. You know, we were always getting tickets to to go to all of these gigs. But also, more importantly, we were getting opportunities in our rubbish little punk band to support some of those 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 bands as they came through. Yeah. Um, and that... You know, that was a double-edged sword because some of the bands that came through at that time were still like, there was the whole prog rock thing that was still going on, you know. (laughs) So uh, I remember being in a really crap punk band 
I don't know why they're called this, but they're called day on. They were called day on beats. I don't really know why. Right. Uh, it's, we've never really gotten to the bottom of that. You know, whatever. Forty years later, but <laughs> we we got a support. That one of the most abiding memories of doing a, a concert at Talky Town Hall for me was that um, we we got a support slot for the Enid, like a prog rock band called the Enid. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. I have not heard I of would, them. Anyway, they they were big, right? right? They were big. They were bearded. They were big. They were, you know, they were in the same kind of space as Hawkwind and all of those bands, right? Yeah. So we were supporting the Enid. Uh, they were a bunch of prog rockers. There were 2,000 fucking hippies sitting on the floor in front of us as we came onto the stage. And th- th- it was silence. No one, you know, acknowledge- it's just like, it was really ridiculous. We were this crap punk band playing in front of a, a prog rock audience of 2,000 people who after about seven minutes just started throwing stuff at us. <laughs> and, uh, and, after about, and after about eight minutes, um, you know, members of the Enid were coming on stage to try and shepherd us off the stage. <laughs> and, uh, and then after about nine minutes, uh, I think our drummer, this guy, Den, Uh, I've got this vivid memory of turning around and seeing Den holding the beard of one of the Enid and having a kind of tussle with him on the stage in this like (laughs) doing and throwing with this beard holding. Um, And (laughs) so there were hails of bottles and a fight on stage with the Enid to try and get us to get rid of us. Anyway, so that you know, I was in various punk bands, uh, and it was it was a weird place because I I grew up with old people. Yeah. Torquay is renowned for being a retirement town, so I I got more and more wound up being there, and especially because I was kind of in, starting to be involved with music. I um you know I just I just had to get out of there. I got in all sorts of trouble because after punk I kind of became a scooter boy um, and I was riding around on scooters in a big scooter gang and all of that stuff, and. Um, not to put too fine a point on it, I got in, got in lots of trouble, which resulted in, you know, police and court and all of that stuff. Oh, wow. And I was glad to, uh, I was glad when a friend of mine mounted what we would call now an intervention. And uh, I, I was at the tail end of that trouble and he came to see me and he's like, listen, if you stay in Torquay, you're going to die. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I suggest... You, because you, you, you're just going to get involved in loads of really horrible stuff, and you, you know you're going to die of boredom or frustration or all of the other things that can make you die when you're a teenager. You will do. Mm. Um, so he said, um, you know, move to Manchester with me. Uh, he he already had a place in Manchester. He was in his final year of of, of uh, a course in Manchester, and he was writing his dissertation on factory records. Right, and um, that was great because. Every band I loved and almost every album I owned at that point in time was on factory. Right. So there were bands like Section 25 and A Certain Ratio and Joy Division, which obviously turned into New Order and all of that stuff. That was all like on my radar. And I, I, I loved that stuff. I could really relate to that stuff. God knows how from being in Torquay, how, how that, that music coming out of the center of Manchester could, could influence me, but it really did. And, I took him up on his offer and I went from seaside retirement town of Torquay and just parachuted straight into Moss Side in Manchester <laughs> in the early 80s when it was, it was at its most deprived, it was at its most ghettoized. There were a lot of very, very poor people there. All of that stuff was amazing to me because I hadn't seen any of that stuff because I grew up in Torquay, right? right. So... What what seemed to be scary 
to most people, you, you kept hearing this commentary about, you know, Moss side being, you know, how rough it was and all of this stuff. It was just invisible to me. The great thing was that I, within a month, I was living next door to and interacting with all of the bands that I loved because my friend was writing his college dissertation right. on factory records. He had befriended all of the bands. He then introduced me to all of the bands. I then got introduced to factory records and that kind of started my whole, that was a springboard to my whole kind of musical career because guess what, you know, less than a year after I moved to Manchester, um, factory decided to open what became a, a world renowned club called the Hacienda. <laughs> yes. And, the Hacienda was was a really, really big deal. It was a really big transformative thing for me. Um, for a start, it's a remark- it was a remarkable venue. It didn't look like any other club in the world. You know, it was all red velveteen and gold in those days. You know, when you used to go into a nightclub, it was sticky carpets and red velveteen and kind of, you know, horrible lighting and you know, mirrors everywhere and stuff. And this was the antithesis of that. It was grey painted floors. It was hazard stripes on girders. It was, you know, all of these different elements from an industrial landscape had been shoehorned into a club environment. And it was, you know, again, for a couple of thousand people, it was just an amazing place to be. And in those early days, there were seven or seven bands a week playing there every night it was open sometimes most of the time there were there was probably more staff than punters there it was empty because no one could get their head around this amazing roster of artists that they had coming through right yeah everything everything from devo to madonna you know everything in between right yeah but here's the thing because i got to know the label and because i had a a a kind of a head start over all of my mates who were still in Torquay, when my friends did come up, I would just swan around the hacienda with them like I owned the place, right? And I'd be like, oh yeah, this is so-and-so, this is Ginger, he's the running, he's the manager, this is Leslie, she runs the bars, this is so-and-so, he does the lighting. And then the guy that was doing the lighting was, I've forgotten his name, unfortunately, but anyway, he was, he was probably my age, my age that I am now. He hated it. He hated being there. He hated these stupid, weird alternative bands that were playing. He hated the music that was being DJed. He hated it. So when I said to him, oh, you know, I can do that if you want, uh, he was on his lighting desk and I, and I just said, so what's that? What's this? You know, and within minutes, I sort of understood the concept of a lighting desk. So when my friends came from Torquay, I would, I'd be like, hey, come on, let's go up to the lighting room. You know, I'll, I'll, sh- I'll yeah, we're, we can just hang out there. Mm. And I, and I started doing the lighting for the club sections when he didn't want to do it. And then, um, and then he said, oh, do you want to do the support bands when, when bands are playing? I was like, yeah, okay. And, and about a couple of weeks later, I got a call from management and they, they, they brought me down to the office and said, listen, we've had, uh, We've had some complaints about the lighting for the support bands. I was like, oh, right. And I just thought, okay, that's that. And they said, listen, it's, it, it appears that the main bands are pissed off because the lighting for the support bands is better than the lighting for the main band. <laughs> and and uh, so I was like, oh, that's okay. That's such a headliner thing to do, isn't it? It's that's so spinal tap. Yeah, why are their yeah. lights better than ours? Yeah, Someone exactly. talks to the management. We can't have them having better lights than us. Well, it, it worked to my advantage because what happened was they uh, they said, so we're sacking the lighting guy. You're now the lighting guy. I was like, oh. <laughs> so all of a sudden I had to know about patch bays and DMX and and dimmer dimmers and all of these bits. And then I had to learn how to, you know, tail 450 volt, three phase, 60 amp electrics onto, into, onto a rig and all of this stuff. I learned that stuff very quickly. But then... Who taught you that? I... 
I don't know. Self, I don't know just, how. You just I just sort of figured it out, right? Yeah, because there, there were PA guys coming in all the time with sound systems and stuff, and I just picked stuff up. And then I, I had to kind of work with local, local lighting companies because we had to buy supplies. And I guess I just saw, how do you do this? You know, what does, you know, what happens if I touch 450 volts? You know, that kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, and so they taught, they taught me all of that stuff. Uh, I, but within um, maybe six months of doing bands as they came through the Hacienda, I started to get offers to go on tour with various bands and you know i did lighting for for everyone from madonna to you two to this to that you know loads of loads of bands and then um are we glossing are we just going to gloss over that are we yeah d- d- but I, I didn't i didn't do very i didn't do very big tours with those but i did i did get some european gigs from all of those kind of big names how big are these guys at this time when they when they're offering you the well, by by way of example, um, the gig that Madonna did at the Hacienda, she did on uh, a TV show called The Tube, right? And it was her first ever appearance in the UK. Okay, and she was and she was performing Holiday. It was her first or second single. So these aren't the artists that we now know as Madonna and U two asking you at this no, time. No, not at all. Okay. But I mean, U two was still pretty big, but they, you know, they'd had half a dozen hit singles and stuff because right. they've been going like forever, right? But but you know, I did I did bits and pieces, the Water Boys and yeah, you know, all all of these other bands. But then weirdly, an, an avant garde German band turned up called Einstutz and a Neubarten. <laughs> Favorite band, I love them. <laughs> right, Einstutz and a Neubarten for people that don't know is um, it translates as collapsing new buildings. That is great. They had a reputation for using power tools at various venues and basically wreaking havoc. So all of this noise, your concrete mixers, pneumatic drills, grinders, drills, all of these things, right, formed part of the ensemble. And they ended up putting a big Kango, one of these big drills, in, into the wall of the Hacienda and all of this stuff happened. Yeah. And, um, but I did, you know, I really sort of liked what they were doing. So I, I, I gave them lighting that matched what they did, this chaotic, high contrast lighting that I managed to do. And I ended up touring with those guys for, for years and years and years. And I loved it. I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe because of that. West Berlin was still West Berlin when I when I first started working with those guys, which was a remarkable place. What year are we in at this point? We're probably in 82, 83. Right. Around that time. So it was really brilliant. It was ahead of, you know, the wall coming down in Berlin. But incidentally, because I was with Neubarten, uh, we played a gig in West Berlin the night the wall came down and we had the mayor of East Berlin and the mayor of West Berlin at Hansa which is right on right next it's a big big venue and recording studio that David Bowie did loads of stuff in right next to the Berlin Wall and it happened then and it was just an amazing place to be so you know Neubarten was a relatively obscure thing but but they they did relatively high profile gigs because they were they were deemed to be art not music right so we would we'd be invited over to you know whatever Canada and we'd we'd there would be a civic reception and the mayor of Toronto would invite us and it was all black tie and we'd turn up in this leather and kind of hair everywhere and kind of you know looking completely disgraceful but we got invited to all of these these things and it was great now this this kind of segues a little bit because um the the guy that was their singer a guy called blixer bargelt ended up being the guitarist for nick cave and and so he then introduced me to nick and then i started touring with nick cave and the bad seeds and um 
and again, you know, I was I had lots of other stuff going on in the background, but I enjoyed being with those guys so much that in, you know, whether I was running another company or doing music or whatever, I carried on working with Nick Cave for quite a long time uh, because they were just remarkable people, yeah. talented people, and I, re- I really loved being with them. Anyway, all of that happened. Shall I shut up or shall I carry no, on? No, man, carry on. This is great. Mate, the, the most I had to add was was about 10 minutes ago, and I was going to talk about when I was in Torquay playing a show last. Next door was a um, was a uh, ladies' night at some club thing, and I could just see <laughs> loads of blokes showing up having bought um, bloody whipped cream and shit, and that was it. That's oh, all no. I had. That's, don't worry. Don't, you, you're good. You carry on. <laughs> it's, it's, too, it's too sordid. It's too much. Um, it's like, ben, is that squirt? Did they just buy squirt? Did they just do that? <laughs> So, but I, yeah, so, right, so let's say you're with Nick Cave in the Bad Seeds, legendary yeah. band, um, yeah. Boatman's Call, Murder Ballads, all that stuff. Are you all there? of that stuff. Are you there for that, that period? Yeah, all of that. Um, so now when I hear that stuff, I know every, because I've been to so many hundreds of gigs with those guys, I know every no. song note for note. I know every nuance and uh, became really quite close with Nick. And then we lost touch and then we then we got back in touch again because I ended up living in Brighton and he moved to Brighton. So I was really happy about that. And then, so while I was doing all that stuff in the background, I started a, a, a new tech or a, a new media agency, new media, as it was called then digital agency, it'd be called now. And, uh, we started, uh, cause I had my own recordings. Oh, I've missed out a bit. Sorry. I, <laughs> while I was touring, mm. um, I was earning good money, but I was out of the country for six months a year. And that meant that um, when I got back to the UK, I had money in my pocket, which would allow me to continue to write rubbish music. But the rubbish music gradually got better. <laughs> what genre are we in? Okay, so now, you know, I've always been obsessed with technology. That's the one thread that runs through all of my careers, right? What happened was that as I was messing around with technology and I was at the Hacienda and the dance music revolution started in late 85, early 86. I had all of this kind of technology available to me because I'd been able to fund it through being a lighting guy and being on, on tour with various people. So I started to kind of create studios and, you know, started to produce music. And then we, we, had, a, we had a great moment where um, my girlfriend at the time, a girl called Debbie Turner, she was really good mates with Alan McGee at Creation Records. Mm. And um, she, she, she invited Alan up to the Hacienda, right? It was a big night. It was hands in the air, 2,000 people, everyone on a pill. It was absolutely insane all the time. It was like that three or four times a week at the Hacienda. So Alan came up and Creation at the time was, you know, a, a bit of a shoegazer kind of label. It was a bit indie rock. Um, they didn't really have anything to do with dance music at all. And Alan came up spent a couple of nights with us, went out to the Hacienda. He took ecstasy for the first time, discovered it. This is all, by the way, in a in a biopic that's just about to be released about yeah. Alan McGee called Creation Stories, right? I was going to mention that. His Instagram is hilarious. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. It's no. just pictures it of him in tracksuits, like stood somewhere, just looking a bit... That's about the strength of it, yeah. Looking a bit clueless. It's hilarious. He, he came up He came up to Hacienda. We... we he... he managed to procure the necessary chemicals to get him on a dance floor. And uh, he had the most revelatory time of his life. Um, He couldn't believe that an atmosphere could be so warm, so engaging, so 
completely locked onto a groove yeah that it was like it was like those dance floors what you know nowadays it's kind of lots of people kind of holding their phones and they're doing selfies while they're on the dance floor and all of that stuff but back at that era, you know, everyone was wearing baggy clothes. Everyone was wearing clothes that, that they were work clothes, right? It was, it was clothes that you could dance in for 18, 18 hours straight <laughs> if you needed to. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's what a dance floor is like one organism pulsing to, to music for, you know, hours and hours at a time. Anyway, he had amazing time. And at the end of it, it was like, man, I want to make dance music. I want to make fucking dance music. You know, that's, that's, I can't do a Scottish accent, so I'm not going to attempt it. <laughs> but, um, and, and Debbie was like, well, Tony, you know, does dance music. And he was like, right, I want to hear what you're doing, you know, all of this stuff. Anyway, I went down to London and we, we threw a few ideas around and, um, he, at that point we, we thought, oh, you know, let's set up a new dance label, you know, and I was going to kind of do this dance label thing with him. And let's call it chemical. Let's call it chemical records. And he he we, he sat with that idea for a bit, and then was like, "No, man, I'm going to do it all on creation. Let's do it all on creation." By the way, there's this band Primal Scream, um, and they really want to make dance records. And you can turn a fucking computer on. Why don't you help them? <laughs> uh, so I was like, okay. And at that time, I, I think I'd, uh, he'd signed me to the label with with a co-writer that I was working with called Martin Mittler. And we signed to Creation under the name Hypnotone. And we'd just done our first album with them. And, you know, I got introduced to Primal Scream. And I, was, I started working with the guitarist, Andrew Innes. Um, and, uh, and, and we created, uh, Screamadelica. And so that's, we, that we sort of got involved. What do you mean? With... Hang on, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> hang on a minute. Hang you on, don't know any of this, do you, Andy? No, I don't know any of this shit. Hang on. Wait, yeah. wait, 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 wait. So what, hang on. When you say you created Screamadelica, can you just expand on that for me? Cause I, I've got that next door. I've got that on my CD rack next door. So let's. Right. I mean, everyone has it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have got it. Yeah. Right? So I, so they did. Those guys didn't know how to turn on a computer. They didn't know how to make beats. They didn't know how to write bass lines with with keyboards. They didn't know how to program drums. They didn't know how to make samples. So in the same way that I've been working with my my co-writer for Hypnotone, Martin Mittler, I got I got locked in a council flat with Andrew Innes. That he was kind of one of the main songwriters of Primals and and uh, guitarist. And so we had a couple of racks of samplers and a bunch of keyboards and I took a load of Hypnotone kit down to him and so we had, you know, sequences and a couple of computers and samplers and keyboards and percussion. And we started to pull together the album or the, 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 the fundamental building blocks for, for what the album would become. Um, and, then, uh, and then that got kind of taken into the studio carried on doing bits and pieces with it with them in there and then you know others got involved you know people like you know Andy Weatherall and all of the others got involved as well I did it on a kind of work for hire basis so I I was really happy because I was earning I was earning quite a lot of money from those guys and and actually I had my wages from creation and then I had all of the fees that I was charging Primal Scream to do this album Scream Adelica right what were you charging them Oh yeah, it's like five hundred quid a day or something. But it doesn't. It's not much money now when you see, when you think about how many records it sold and stuff. But at right. the time, it was a real lot of money because yeah. I was also on wages, and Primals were earning nothing. Right? <laughs> so this was all getting billed to McGee, is it? Yeah, I, all getting. I was getting paid by Creation, which was brilliant. 
and so I, I had I had a I had a sports car, and I was driving up and down from Manchester to London to work on the shows and right whatever. And then, um, so I eventually, you know, carried on working on Screamer Delica, and then even even at one point, I. I think I think I've got a co-production credit on one of the tracks, but I haven't got any co-writing, so I guess I'm quite a lot of money down in the scheme of things. But at right. the time, yeah, at the time I was I was really doing well and I was really chuffed with it, and I'm still really chuffed with it because I had a real blast. But even you know, I'm actually even doing the vocals on one of the tracks. So there's a there's a track called um, oh God, I can't remember <laughs> the name of the track. Uh, Andy, do I have to? Uh, do I have? To- oh, trip inside this house, right? So me me and Rob, uh, the guitar, the other guitarist, uh, we ended up doing all the vocals on Trip Inside This House because Bobby didn't turn up. So we, we were both doing Bobby Gillespie impersonations, I seem to remember. And, <laughs> and it, was, it, was our, it was our vocals that made it onto the record because Bobby right. never showed up for that track. So I did, I, I did loads of... So once that album was done, uh, I then toured with them for a year or so. Um, I think, yeah, I did a couple of tours anyway. Um, and I was doing keyboards, backing vocals, percussion... Uh, on tour with them so what i want to know is uh they're paying you 500 a day you're getting a wage for creation this is pre-oasis isn't it yeah yeah so yeah. this is before they've really like you know i'm just before to... they've really cracked it and, and actually scream Delica was one of the albums that that really went they cracked for it. it right so yeah. before so where's because this money is only coming to you because via the success of the label i guess isn't it yeah so who yeah. is bringing the success in that's gonna allow you to charge 500 they were, they, were ex- they were they were a successful indie label in, right. in indie terms right they had a little office over in bethnal green in east london yeah, and you know they had my bloody Valentine, they had Primal Scream, they had uh, the Line of Time, Slow Dive, all of that stuff, right? So they're they're doing pretty well. They're, it's a proper label. There's, right. You know, there's ten people working there. It's it's kind of it's doing all right, you okay. know. But it's before it got into the big time with bands like Oasis and before Primal Scream became Scream at Delica Primal Scream, you know, um, and before they they'd done a bunch of other kind of big dance hits before before weather all got you know totally embedded and all of that stuff so uh, you know they they had enough money to pay me yeah um and and they were really generous and you know i'm i'm eternally grateful to alan for for giving me the break and for you know signing a kind of someone that you know that was completely unknown i ended up working under a bunch of different names um making dance records and i did that for about 12 years so right time, right place kind of thing, isn't it, with Alan McGee? It's this, the, all bit. these stories are like that, aren't they? You know, you do a bunch of work in a bunch of different uh, fields and you don't know how they pair up or how they're going to pair up. And, it, and at yeah. some point in time, they all of those skills converge with a, with a stroke of luck of, you know, Alan McGee doing an E. Yeah, um, I mean, the funny... Th- yeah, exactly. And the funny thing is now, you know, with this biopic that's coming out called Creation Stories, which is out in March... The, the the producer and director of that is a guy called Nathan McGough. Right. And Nathan it was a very old friend of mine. And he, w- he was involved with Factory because he was actually a very close friend of Tony Wilson, one of the founder directors of Factories. And, and he, Nathan ended up kind of living at Tony's house. I ended up uh, going to Tony's house quite a lot because he had an edit suite in his basement, which was the Factory Records uh, video company called Icon. So I was always hanging around at Tony's house. And I got to know Nathan there, and 
that it was a very small gene pool in Manchester in those days. And so Nathan and I kind of circled around the same girls and had the same girlfriends. And there was this very kind of tight, incestuous kind of thing going on in Manchester at the time. And then Nathan and I lose touch. Nathan then becomes Happy Monday's manager uh, (laughs) when I go off to do different other things. And then, you know, years later, we loop back around. He comes down to Froome because he's managing another band and they play in Froome. And um, and then Nathan and I reconvene, and he's like, "Oh, I'm making this biopic, and would you mind, you know, can we use one of your one of the Hypnotone tracks in the biopic?" I was like, "Yeah, no, that sounds great." And uh, so now we've got Bez from Happy Mondays pretending to DJ at the Hacienda in the biopic, playing one of my records. <laughs> so, Are you not in the biopic? Have you asked him, "Where's my, you know, where's my cameo? Where's my cameo?" No, I didn't. I didn't do that. Uh, I don't think I'd have gotten that. I don't know. Um, but but it's it, it's just funny, isn't it? Yeah. Like the, the, all of those loops closing uh, and you know all of that stuff. I I'm really looking forward to seeing the film. Haven't seen it yet. Um, I think it's going to be good though. I've been thinking about approaching Alan McGee for a um, for a podcast actually, um, and then I noticed that a biopic's coming out, and I thought, ah, oh, I probably won't even get any, anywhere near him now. Because it'll all be it'll be the major uh, it'll be the major outlets for a while now, won't it? And uh, maybe I'll I wait till it's died I don't down. know. I mean, maybe maybe I should introduce you to Nathan. Yeah, uh, because you know maybe he can introduce you to Alan. But uh, Nathan's got a story to tell, you know, because like he's been through the whole factory process like I did. Factory was really important to him. It was as important to him as it was to me. He had this closer relationship to Tony Wilson than I had. Yeah. Um, but you know, then he's, he's gone through the whole, you know, he was happy Monday's manager for God's sake. So he's, he's probably got as many ludicrous stories about being on the road with happy Mondays as I have for being on the road with primal scream. There's there's a whole podcast just in happy Mondays stories, I imagine. So where are we up to now? What year are we up to? You've done this, you've done primal screen. Was this 89? Yeah, 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 yeah. So went through all of that stuff into the early nineties, I think. And then as I made more music, um, and made a bit of money, I ended up with a, a load of computers um, that were sitting, you know, I had a studio, I had my own studio to work in. But, but the way we worked, we often worked in the control room, so the live area was completely empty, right? We didn't use it for anything. So I ended up, you, you know, stack, stacking a load of kind of computers into the live area that were just redundant, last year's model or whatever. Right. Um, I started thinking to myself, oh, you know, what, what's, what can I do with that? And so um, the internet was becoming a thing. I'd already done a research project um, into kind of digital audio, feasibility of using digital audio on the internet. I did that in the mid-80s, which was a European-funded thing, uh, thanks to a very forward-thinking, you know, Manchester City Council. And, um, and I had all these computers. I was like, you know what? The internet uh, is going to be... It's, it's important, right? So I started uh, my first digital agency, um, and I got a couple of, uh, you know, postgrads or, you know, recently graduated, uh, t- programming students out of Manchester University. And I created a digital agency and we started building websites for different record companies. So everything from React Music to Warner Brothers to Sony to wherever. Um, and we had this, this agency making websites for labels and for bands and whatever. And, um, you know, by virtue of that, I ended up meeting quite often with the chairman of Sony Music and uh, one day in particular I I met with this guy and they'd been a client of ours for a year or two 
and we were making good money from them. You know, I had no complaints. Uh, but I, I was I really enjoyed going into to see you know Sony um, because when I was there I spent all of my time going you know what guys I'm I'm disappointed <laughs> you know I thought Sony was a forward thinking company but you're not doing this you haven't done that yet you don't seem to understand this da 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 digital mobile right. online you know physical sales what what you're doing blah 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 so um, I had a three hour meeting with the chairman at sony and uh i i came out of that and and his assistant said jesus you know what how what happened how did uh what why he never told i've had to cancel like 10 meetings while you've been in there and i said oh i don't know we were just chatting you know anyway i went back to manchester i didn't think anything of it i thought we may get a bit more business out of them uh, I got a call the next day from his assistant and she said, uh, listen, Paul would really like you to come back down. Uh, I think he wants to talk to you about something quite serious. I was like, right, uh, well, I can't, you know, I'm working. So she said, well, well, can I just get something in the diary for next week maybe? And I was like, yeah, okay, um, but, you know, okay, fine. So, And you didn't I, think at this point that she was maybe sort of hinting at you like, you know, come on now, come on down. I thought maybe, you know, maybe they've got a bit more work for us or something right, like that. Right, okay. Anyway, in a subsequent call, she said, listen, I think Paul wants to make you an offer. And I was like, oh, uh, okay, I don't know about that. Because, you know, I've got my own company and everything's going okay and I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. Mm. But she's, you know, but I started thinking to myself, <laughs> oh, you know, Sony Music, that's, that's quite a big deal. And then I started thinking <laughs> to myself, oh, I've, I've never had a job. I wonder how much, uh, I wonder how much that would, I'd get paid, you know. So I started thinking, well, you know, maybe if they pay me that much... If it's X, then maybe I should do it, right? Maybe I should take that job and, and, and move into a big corporation and it might be quite exciting. And so I, we, I had another meeting with, with Paul. This is Paul Berger. He was the chairman at the time. And uh, he, 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 was, he was all over it. And, and at the end of the meeting, he's like, listen, how, how would it be if I offered you this? And he, he mentioned a number. And it was three times X. It was three times what I thought it might be. Right. Right. Hey, can you can you divulge? Or are we not are we not going there? Ah, uh, you know, it was a it was a pretty big six figure <laughs> number, right? Right. And and uh, and I was used to running my own agency, but I was only you know in a good year I would pay myself fifty or sixty grand. You know, uh, that was in a good year. A lot of the time it was way less than that, and. Um, because I was running this company and I, you know, I, I ended up with, you know, quite a few people. So, um, I, I didn't really have, uh, the, 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 the knowledge of what I was worth. And so it, I, I, in short order, but basically what I did is I recruited a, a managing director for my agency and I, I told them what company car I wanted at Sony and I got one and, uh, they paid me three times X. Uh, I went in as a director straight away. Yeah. Um, it was pretty mad. Uh, all of a sudden I was in these meetings where I was looking at, I was with the senior management team of Sony. I was, I was like, Jesus, how did this happen? And, you know, looking up at the slides from a, from a perspective of a recording artist, right? Yeah. And I was looking at how many hundreds of millions were coming through the company, how much of that made it to the artists, how much of it was going into Sony and so on and so forth. And it right. was a really enlightening. It was very, very enlightening. And very exciting. Yeah. And then, um, so I, I went in as a company director with the UK. And then uh, about a year later, um, I became Euro European vice president. And uh, 
And then I started driving all of the new technology strategy for Sony across 26 countries. Right. And then, um, and then I got dragged over to the US quite a lot. And I ended up doing a number of years over, over in the US where I was in, I was in New York for a week, a month for a number of years. Right. Um, and I was helping them figure out what the hell to do with mobile. And I, I guess I was with, I was with Sony for seven or eight years altogether. So it took us into the, you know, around 2004, something like that. And, um, yeah, it was weird because, uh, then my boss got fired. My, <laughs> my boss was the European chairman. Right. Um, and we, we were doing pretty well in Europe, especially with digital, uh, must've been something to do with me cause that was my job. Right. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but they didn't like that in New York because it felt to them like the balance of powers was shifting from New York office to the London office. Right. Um, because we were doing more revolutionary things there with digital technologies in general. So it kind of, what they did was they, they basically cut the head off the snake and they, they fired my boss, the European chairman. And then they, they sort of said, oh, you're going to report into this guy now over in New York. And I was like, oh. That sounds so uh, weird to me because it's like, oh, look, um, we're doing really well. Or, you know, the company's <laughs> doing really well in like one sort of, you know, one pillar of the company is doing really, really well. We don't like this. Let's, uh, that's uh, very strange to me that they wouldn't just adopt the, the same strategies that you were doing and then have that success. Yeah, Sony Music is a, is a privately owned business, right? It's not publicly traded. It's part of the Sony Group, which is publicly traded, but it, it personally isn't. Right. It, it you know, um, individually isn't traded. That means that it's, it's essentially run for senior executives, right? So that I was on a good six-figure salary, um, but there's a lot of people in New York who are on seven and eight-figure salaries. Right, <laughs> yeah. Right, see, and yeah. they don't want to. They don't want their position. Oh, they um, need to justify their jobs. Undermined. Right. No, they they don't need to justify their jobs. They're so high up that they justify it to themselves. I see. But right. but they don't want the power moving to Europe because that potentially has a negative impact on the the power of the New York office and and the tenability of those roles. So um, they decided to get rid of the European chairman and. Um, I lost my wingman, my protection. I see. Uh, I was asked to report into someone who was a few levels down uh, from chairman, and I wasn't used to doing that. And so I sort of said, no, thank you. Right. And uh, they cut me a deal and gave me a bunch of money, and I left. Which is good timing. Now, I wanted to ask you initially, when he offers you this job, I know we've got to backpedal a little bit here, what was the qualities that he said that he saw in you that he wanted? What was it he said to you in his pitch to you of like, I want to give you this job with the six figures, the three times, you know, X, your dream amount. What was it he said to you? He said, Tony, you're thinking of what the future or you, you're, you know, you're ahead of the game here. What is it? Well, it, it basically it was a lot of the time I was doing all the talking. So I was very much like, you need to do this. It's so stupid. You're not doing that. Why haven't you done this yet? You know, da, 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 da. Right. And all, all he said to me in a nutshell, Andy, all he said to me was, uh, yeah, we, we need you. Right. So and that, right. <laughs> we, we need you to do that stuff. And the money did the rest of the talking for him. The money did the rest of the talking. Okay. And, you know, I, man, I was so lucky because, uh, you know, you know, I, I ended up, you know, uh, I'd never had a brand new car before. Right? I ended up with this ridiculous car, yeah. and then and then 
they were like, oh, and you've got an assistant. And then they were like, oh, and by the way, we're going to give you an apartment inside Sony at the t- on the top floor of the buildings <laughs> on, on Great Marlborough Street. <laughs> and uh, so I, uh, and then they were like, oh, you've got, a, by the way, you've got a corner office in New York and you've got another assistant over there. And, uh, oh, and by the way, do you need a driver? You know, and it was, it was kind of, right. you know. What uh, happens to your, what happens to your ego at this point? Because that's a lot. And how old are you then? Oh, I'm pretty. I'm pretty old. I guess I'm thirty, uh, thirty-eight, thirty-nine. I think. Okay, so you you all right? Because a lot of the time, when people get m- that kind of money and power and and, and and influence early, it goes south, doesn't it? So you've got you've got enough life experience behind you at this point to to um, to roll with it and not let it sort of be the end of you. It could, yeah, have, also, it could have become another talkie, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it could have in, in a way. But you know what? Um, I had, uh, listen, I'd, I'd experienced every kind of rock and roll excess that could be experienced because I'd, I'd toured both as a lighting director but also as a, as a recording artist, right, with some pretty extreme characters. Yeah. And so we had, you know, those are other stories that maybe weren't their own thing. But, you know, being away with Nick Cave, being away with, with primal screen being away with you know various with the weird germans and all of that stuff <laughs> there is no level of excess that has not been plumbed at that point yeah, right there is right. nothing that that is has remained undone so you're a survivor <laughs> yeah so by the time i get to sony music all i'm thinking is don't blow it right okay just do this own it do it um you know, and, and there are still loads of people, you know, it's a big record company, right? So obviously there's loads of people doing coke all over the place and having inappropriate relations with their assistants on conference room tables. But that um, that really at that point wasn't interesting to me. Right. Uh, I just wanted to focus in on, on uh, turning the super tanker, which was a major record company, um, and persuading them to do things that they really just didn't want to do on a department-by-department basis. Digital technology touched sales, it touched artist relations, it touched A&R, um, it, you know, online presence, audience engagement, all of that stuff they hadn't yet done. Even the press department, everything right. was done in a very, very analogue way. So and is this so, pre-iTunes? Yeah. Yeah, it is pre-iTunes. Well, it transitioned into iTunes while I was there, um, and I had to cut some of those deals. Um, but it was it was when the trouble started brewing with with uh, online offerings like free free music from Napster and stuff like that. LimeWire, yeah, so yeah, all of that. Yeah. I have to put my hands up, Tony, and say that um, I was a LimeWire kid. Yeah, and, and Pirate <laughs> Pirate Bay and all of that stuff, right? So yeah. all, you know, it was all there. I get it. And who who's going to, you know, when it's an all-you-can-eat buffet and there's a very, very low kind of entry price, who's going to not do that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are strategies that could have been deployed early on, like licensing our music to, you know, some of those entities earlier and kind of cutting cutting off the... Right. the you know, creating a compelling service earlier that would have undermined the legitimacy I or see. the availability of music on those free services. Would that have but, been streaming like we see today or would it have been bringing in Napster and LimeWire so they don't feel like these outside outsider entities, like bringing them into the mix and saying, hey, what's going on Yeah, here? there was a moment where, um, you know, there was talk about buying Napster, but there was a really weird vibe 
in Sony Music with its digital um, strategy. And they were obsessed with walled gardens and they were obsessed with kind of creating a, an area on the internet where it was just Sony artists and they expected people to come and just like look at Sony artists. And I spent a lot of my time saying, uh, no. Uh, yeah. For example, I created a rock brand while I was there. I hate rock music, but anyway, I created a rock brand. And, oh, you and, hurt my uh, heart. You hurt my heart then. You know, I know, you know, I don't hate rock music. I like all music <laughs> now, to be honest. But at the time, because I was a dance music person. Yeah. So, but, but I created this rock brand um, called, uh, called hardplace.net. And that obviously now <laughs> would probably, with a mature internet, that's probably a completely different URL. And, <laughs> but um, but yeah. Hardplace was like a, was a, was a rock uh, kind of portal. Yeah. And uh, I really freaked Sony out because what I wanted to do was bring in artists from other labels because yeah. there's no way that, any hard rock fan is going to go to a hard rock portal that is just Sony artists. They don't yeah. care about what label they're on. No. So what I, I did was I, for the first time, created a portal where other uh, labels could represent their content. And I guess it was like an early iteration of a kind of a, you know, a, a, an online presence that we would expect to see nowadays. Yeah. And, um, and it started, it started to work. And then I created a radio show off the back of that and merchandising and all of that stuff. Um, so, so yeah, that was it. Was, that was the kind of thing I was up against the whole time. It's very, very blinkered view of what did what was possible with digital. So I, I've got I've got about two, probably about two thousand CDs next door. I'm still buy CDs all the time, which I, I think I'm mugging myself off really. But um, I, I love it, and it's something I, I, yeah, I love. Anyway, some of those CDs have a sticker on that says "Hard Place Classics." Yeah. Is that was yeah. this was this your? That's initiative? me. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah, I got a Reef CD. I think with that on. Yeah, Reef. Yeah, yeah they were yeah. one of the bands. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's funny, isn't it? Funny how things. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least at least you know I'm not lying. No, no, I know. No, it's, it's just uh, it's just odd what sticks in your head, isn't it? It's like you know that is weird. You see yeah, those, those stickers, and I've I don't know why because I know that it's got that fuzzy sort of. Uh, uh, font on it. Do you know what I mean? It kind yeah. of tries to look a bit edgy, but not too edgy. Yeah, a little so bit, a little bit kind of world-worn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. fascinating. So you get out of it in 2004. Um, yeah. Four years later is the big crash of the music industry anyway. So you've kind of done a... You've you've jumped the ship at the right time, probably, I haven't you? I suppose so, yeah. Do you yeah. think now your position... Does your position exist within Sony now? Yeah, there's a couple of people that are doing that job. I mean, there's probably only six people in the world, six, seven people in the world that are doing that job right. uh, at big media organisations. Um, and is, you, is their pay going to be the same? Oh, yeah. Okay, so those... Well, actually, I got, I got told that if I hadn't, if, you know, a couple of people when I, was, when I said, oh, you know, I'm not going to report to that guy, a couple of people said to me, oh, just wait, just give it two years. You know, he's, he'll go... You'll be, you know, global head and you'll be on seven figures at that point. And I was like, uh, I was so, I was kind of a bit burnt out. And I just said, I, you know, just, no, let's just cut the deal. I want to go. Right. So I do, obviously, (laughs) having run a few startups since then, where I haven't got like a couple of assistants and a driver and an apartment (laughs) in Soho, I, uh, I have sometimes questioned the validity of that decision. Right. There you go. So they've cut you, when you left, they cut you, what is it, like a severance deal? Yeah. 
and that and, and what is a severance what does i'm not going to ask you how much it is because it's quite obvious that you're not going to tell me but what does a severance deal at that thing at that at that level look like is it a percentage of what you would have earned uh what is what's what's the deal there how do you uh figure it was that a out? couple years couple years money and a bunch of other stuff bunch of other stuff well, like ro- like royalties on future tech stuff, or, or, or uh, no, nothing like that. It's just kind of keep a, the car. a bunch of a bunch of yeah, things like yeah, right. things like keep the car, you know that that kind of thing. Um, so it was it was it was uh, it was a good deal, and uh, you know uh, I was living in Brighton at the time because I had this place in Soho that they gave me, but my main house was down in Brighton. Yeah, and uh, so I decided. Oh, you know what? I, I've I've come close to burnout here. I'm going to take time out. So I took a year off. I uh, learned to fly aeroplanes, and I learned to sail properly. And I did a whole bunch of poncy stuff like that. It's not poncy. That's pretty hardcore. <laughs> dated a load of girls and had a uh, uh, load of fun. And um, and then thought, shit. Uh, I wonder if I can earn that kind of money again. And uh, I really didn't know whether I... whether uh, Anyway, I think I'd, I, let, I let my career go cold for too long, actually. But I ended up uh, running a couple of other tech companies, American tech companies, in the media sector and running their European businesses. So that kind of takes us... That keeps us going for another, like, four or five years, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, my wife and I uh, decided to. We just thought, oh, screw this! You know, I'm on. I'm on this kind of conveyor belt of you know tech and media and all of that stuff. And I really, I was really, I was really over it. And I'd moved further and further away from being a creative person, right? Because originally I was a recording artist, and now all of a sudden I'm running these tech companies. And um, and so we thought, we just thought, screw this. Let's let's move to the south of France. So that's what we did. Do you think? money kills creativity do you think a part of it is that you know you see these bands and and these artists that their first sort of two albums are very uh very relevant you know very relevant and and they have something about them and then as soon as they get they get money and again like assistance and cars and things like that you know and you hear that third album or fourth album you think oh god you're just not angry enough you've got nothing left to say do you know i mean i don't know you're happy you're not making good music (laughs) Well, here's the thing. I think that, that that can be true in an early career, but I think in a later career, it's the absolute inverse that's true. So now, right. you know, I, you know, one of the reasons that I'm I'm running this company with my other founders, uh, Celestial, is you know I, I want to make a buck again, and um, and the reason I want to make a buck is not because I want a shiny car, but it's because I want to buy creative freedom. Mm. I want to be able to go and write a movie. I want to be able to do a bit more music without any kind of uh, commercial pressure. So uh, in later life, I think cash is liberating in terms of, because it buys you creative freedom. Right. In in an early career, I think that cash can be completely debilitating because you start to think you're the centre of the universe and you act like a dick. So, um, <laughs> you know, it just, it just depends where you are, what age you're at, I think, and uh, what it is you're trying to achieve. Who have you seen... Um, in your time that's had the most potential and has got all these things and then a year later you're sat there and you're going, it's just a dickhead now. I think uh, one springs to mind and it's a Sony artist called Finley Quay. Right. And Finley Quay was a really great guy and he released a couple of 
really great albums. And then he just be, he just got really up himself and, and sort of blew deal after deal with label after label because he was just too, like, smoking too much weed and spending too much money and just like, you know. Maybe it's a bad example, but he's, he, he's the one that just springs front of, my, front, front of mind. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of Jamiroquai, but he's, had, he's, he's made some pretty decent pop records, but again... If you're in the room, it's not great. You know, he right. had the potential, potential of not being great. And then Sade as well, you know, she lost her way. And, uh, I, don't, I won't talk too much about that, but she, she had some big problems and <clears throat> that came from money, not from... Maybe it comes from her, I don't know, but maybe yeah, it came from money as well. It's interesting. And, and, and to, just to balance that out, who, who do you see who have come from come from maybe nothing and they get somewhere and you think, God, this person is just becoming, they just keep growing, they keep getting better, they keep developing, they keep evolving. Um, or is it or is it mostly the other way? I don't think it is mostly the other way. I think Radiohead are a really good example of a band that's been around a really long time and completely continue to innovate. Mm. And you can go three albums back with those guys and, and it's still like a brilliant record. And... Uh, and they've got their ethics are in the right place and they they haven't become dickish and they're just really brilliant. And I think that, um, yeah, I was watching that Billie Eilish documentary that Apple's just released the other day right. about that, you know, the, about her first album and how she, you know, first album, groundbreaking sound with her brother and her recording in a bedroom and then mastering in someone else's lounge. And it's it's a record. I've never heard the audio textures that she and he have created before. And, and you know, first album, Made in a Bedroom, wins seven Grammys or whatever it was. So, you know, I, it, can go, it can go either way, can't it? Yeah. You know. And it's madness. And, and you can say, oh, you know, because her dad's fairly successful, isn't he, in, in sort of... Um connected in the in the music industry I yeah they the, the, the whole family they have this classic kind of you know hey let's do a family band you know, and yeah. i'll teach you how to play the ukulele and it's yeah it's, it's really like that and it's a very it's quite a touching documentary but she you know they they were meant to get that record that first album out before they toured she had such a brilliant viral presence um going back to that super distribution thing that they they were still getting sellout shows before the album was released, you know, just because of the virality of some of the early release, you know, the early tracks they released, and um, you know, and so she went, she she made that transition from kind of you know hanging around in the backyard with her folks to kind of having a driver and a and a team of ten surrounding her every, everywhere she went, you know, halfway through the tour that was already happening. So yeah, yeah that's it's madness. But yeah, I was going to say, regardless of things like that, that album, regardless of, of where you've come from or whatever, if you're creating an album, and you and and someone like you is sat, sat there saying, "I've never heard an album quite like this. I've never heard an album visit places, you know, sonically that this place has gone." I don't really care how much money you've got. There's something in that which is just vision, isn't it? Yeah, or or or, or a happy accident, but. It's probably yeah, it's pretty mad. I mean that 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 album, that first album, texturally is just amazing, and it's got all these weird little drops in it, and all of these little nuances and bits of detail that, and you know, 
it's just like, it's even just the, the single words that are dropped in by the mail, you know, like by our brother at various points in the track and stuff are just, just, you know, just the word listen that he says in certain places. And, and it's just, it's great, you know, and it's, it's got all of this cultural context and it's incredibly relevant and it's to do with, you know, that, that zeitgeist, that kind of miserableness of being isolated and yet incredibly well connected, better connected than we ever have been before. And she really nails all of that stuff. Teenage isolation, she nails really beautifully. I remember doing, um, pre-COVID, I was working Glastonbury. I was a a crew manager, no, crew chief, sorry, on a production crew. And I had two guys with me. I had more than that, but I had two guys in particular that, that they didn't care what shifts uh, they were given or how hard they had to work for that festival. All they were there for was Billie Eilish. That's all they could bang on about was, Andy, Andy, <laughs> can you make sure that we can get away for two, two hours for Billie Eilish at the stage on Sunday, whenever it was? And that was all I heard all week, all weekend was Billie Eilish, Billie Eilish. And I was just, there was something, I knew she was a special artist from from that thing. It was just like, they didn't care. They were just there for 45 minutes of this you know, what I thought was like a sort of an alternative pop star thing, which I guess she sort of is. I got, I got to be honest, I haven't really listened to her. I did see a bit of her live, but I'm sure yeah. the record is a completely different experience. It's really worth, it's a headphones on experience, that right. record. You should definitely go for the whole album with the headphones on and it's really worth it, you know. Okay, make a note of that. So you've, <laughs> so you've come out, you, like you said, you, you, you want to you make a buck, you want to buy this, fi- uh, financially you want to buy this creative sort of freedom or this, this sort of headspace to, get creative again and does this lead us to celestial it kind of does yeah i was um you know there's a little bit missing i was in france for seven years i I ran a i ran a non a non-related business in france for four of those years a non non non-tech related business which was a disaster and ended up in divorce and us moving back to the uk what business Um, was this that was a, it was really weird. We thought, oh, we'll do it. We'll do a kind of semi-retirement thing, you know. Let's let's go and rent some camper vans. It'll be fun. And, um, so that sounds like so, a terrible idea for. A- well, I don't know. You know, you, there's this romantic notion of like you know classic VW camper vans, right? Right. And and I'm I'm a skater, and you know I, I you know and I I've got that kind of surf thing going on in my brain, and I and I like the idea of camper vans. We bought a few and we thought, oh, yeah, we'll just rent them out every weekend. That'll be fun. It'll be extra income. We can kind of lay back by the pool most of the time. It'd be good fun. But I have this thing where I was like, oh, you know what? This is really popular and we got loads of coverage in The Guardian and da, 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 da. So I went and raised a million quid and then I rolled it out into four different countries. And um, and it was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> it's really horrible. I really hated it. And it was really stressy for me and my missus, bless her. And um, we never had a holiday. You know, we, we were there to lie by the pool. Yeah. And so for, for, for maybe three or four of the seven years we were there, we were running around all over France and Spain and elsewhere uh, trying to help out clients whose van had inevitably broken down because it was a 50-year-old camper van, right? Yeah. So I, there was one moment where I was just driving from one side of France to the other, uh, at, I think it was three o'clock in the morning, in my own recovery truck <laughs> with, <laughs> with, with the yellow lights flashing on the top and a, and a, 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 
and a <laughs> and a replacement camper van on the back, you know, <laughs> trying to find these clients in the middle of the night at a campsite. I just thought, what the fuck am I doing? Why am I doing this? You think I used to have a driver? I, I, now I'm exactly. driving a fucking recovery truck. What am I? What am I doing? <laughs> and so that was the that was the point at which I was like, oh, you know what? No, no. <laughs> so. Uh, how did you, what was that, how did that conversation go? You get home at sort of 6am, did you, and go, Yeah, you know, darling, we need to talk. Completely demolished from, like, days of stress and angst and driving. And uh, I structured that company in the wrong way. I, it was underfunded. Um, I ended up having to do a lot of the stuff myself. My, my wife also, she ended up doing, taking, doing a lot of heavy lifting, you know. And, um, and we just said, oh, you know, this is horrible, isn't it? It's not fun. Should we just not do it now? <laughs> yeah. So uh, we didn't do it. We divorced. Uh, we moved and we came to Froome. And um, I, uh, one of the great things about running that camper van company, probably the only great thing, was that um, we started to make our own marketing collateral, right? So we started making our own little online ads and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, And I bought a drone to do that with. Uh, not just so you could get fancy aerial shots of the vans, but also because you could do crane shots and dolly shots and all of these things that are pretty expensive to set up if you're making a real advert. Yeah, I, I recognised you could do all of those shots with a, with a drone, and that that really got me thinking. So I had I got real pleasure from making the marketing materials for that company, and then the penny dropped, and I was like, oh, you know what? What I can be creative again. It's got technology blah 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 you know yeah. i'm going to start a drone company so um started a drone company and then moved to the uk that that company actually was called high candy and we started making you know marketing films for different you know real estate and you know going to nice places and staying there and filming the stuff and that was all good fun and uh i you know i loved Froome immediately um i met a whole bunch of creative people here a uh, lots of refugees from the media sector um you know, however much you hate it, you know, having Babington House down the road. Um, I don't hate yeah. it. I, I, I get, I get why people. I get, you know what? I get yeah, the, but the you vibe, know, but. you know, you, you know, Andy. There's an old room and a new room, and all of that. Absolutely. There's a bit of antagonism there. But for me, it meant that uh, you know that was one of the elements that attracted a load of people to Froome. And um, the first time I came here, I I was introduced within the first hour or two. I was introduced to a good, you know, six eight people who were interesting and were doing interesting things anyway long story short i was I, I had a drone company i was in this this office that i'm sitting in now this is forward space at the old church school up in you know up in Froome. and um uh, my my office mate at the time uh mark he was having a christmas party a year ago and he said oh yeah come to the christmas party and i'd, I'd in the meantime i'd been hearing about this guy hoppy uh, who had a drone company. I was like, what are the odds? You know, like with two guys with drone companies in Froome. Yeah. And um, I went to this Christmas party and I got introduced to the, for the first time to Hoppy. And I sort of <laughs> jokingly pushed him against the wall. I said, you're Hoppy. Everyone thinks I'm you. You know, I'm sick of you taking my, <laughs> stealing my, you know, bloody backstory with your drone company. You know? <laughs> anyway, we had a laugh about that. And, um, he started to tell me what he was doing with Celestial and it sounded really compelling. Um, and because of my background, a bit of consultancy and I kind of knew the investment sort of landscape a little bit. I said to him, you know, uh, 
well, why don't I help you out? You know, you don't have to pay me any money, but why don't you give me a little chunk of the company? Whatever, 5%, and I'll go away and we'll get some investment for you. Yeah. And let's get the ball rolling. Because at that point, it was just he and uh, the other co-founder, Nick. And um, they, 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 they had the idea, but they hadn't really turned it into a business yet. So I said, oh, I can help you with that. And after about, uh, it was a few weeks, I think, uh, they, I had to sit down with them. And they said, listen, you've, you've, you've kind of got quite a lot of done in a very short amount of time. And we think it's appropriate if you come in as a full co-founder. So we'd like to give you 30% of the business. And I was so, I, I really like those guys. They're, they're, they're brilliant. They're really lovely people. The idea was really solid. I could see immediately the investors really liked the idea. And so it seemed like the, the thing to do. So I, I came on board. We, we did a round of investment. We opened and closed that round in, within two weeks and we were we were twenty uh, percent oversubscribed, and just I mean, all of all of my other experience about raising investment was completely different to that. It, right. it always takes months. You always have to twist their fucking arms until it's like, have you written the check yet? Have you transferred the money? Do you want to do this? Yeah. It takes months and months and months, right, to get this stuff done. Usually, when bearing in mind, not only did we not have any clients or you know, anything really, we also didn't even own a drone. Right at that point, uh, but, <laughs> right. but we but we we managed to sell. We we told a good story. We that the investors immediately loved the story, um, and not only did investors love the story, but future clients loved it. As soon as we started talking to them about it, we we kind of got the deal, and also staff members loved it. And so all everything has coalesced around this core idea, right? investors, a great team and great clients. And so, um, we still had no drones. Um, when we first started speaking to our kind of launch client, uh, we had some drones actually, it's not true. We, we started doing tests and we started to figure out some stuff with very small numbers of drones, 20 drones or something. Right. And then we, um, we got this opportunity to pitch to, um, Hogmanay up in Edinburgh for the New Year's Eve event, um, which had to be different because of COVID. So it wasn't hundreds of thousands of people on the street as it usually might be. Uh, but they needed a, a something different. Um, so we pitched them this idea that we'll, we'll we'll put drones up and we'll film it, and then the film of those drones can you know can be the event, and people will be able to still celebrate, but in a safe way. So we, we identified all of these different locations around Edinburgh, all of the landmark locations, you know, like Carlton Hill and uh, Murrayfield Stadium and the Fourth Rail Bridge and all of that stuff. Right. And uh, we, we we talked and we talked and we talked. We had seventeen meetings with uh, Edinburgh City Council, Scots Police, uh, Ministry of Defence, um, CAA. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et All of this multi-agency kind of meetings where you know, everyone talked for hours and hours and hours, and we gradually kind of manoeuvred them into this position. It's like, okay, you know, you could do this. I guess you could do this. You know, and bear in mind, no one had ever done a, a proper swarm drone show right. in the UK at that point in time either. The CAA didn't even. You know, we we were the first company to submit 
what's called an operational safety case to the CAA, Civil Aviation Authority. Yeah, I want you to get into all the nitty gritty of this stuff, the the how you apply, what you have to what you have to ask for, um, the the software. Yeah, just go for it with all of this yeah, stuff. Yeah. It was it was it was pretty crazy. Um, and so after seventeen of those multi hour multi agency meetings, um, they said no, <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, oh. Uh, that's a no then. And we were like, yeah, that's a no. Uh, it's too dodgy. I was like, come on, man. You know, we're going to do this. It's going to be 300 drones, but it will be three o'clock in the morning. The show only lasts five minutes. No one's going to know that it's there. If anyone hears it or spots it, by the time they've got their trousers on, it's going to be over. You know, like there's a zero COVID threat here, right? Yeah. And they were like, no, we can't be responsible for a single COVID death, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So we, we thought they were being really overcautious. Fair enough, you know, it's their decision at the end of the day. But then we we had this um, this brainwave and we were like, okay, we'll do it in the Highlands. There was nobody there, right? No one can come. Right. And they were like, oh, uh, yeah, okay. So the money got signed off by Edinburgh City Council Um and we decided to put the show on in the Highlands. And we ended up taking, we at that point, we're just 150 drones up to a loch in a beautiful location called Aknakari. And we <laughs> we had underestimated the challenge associated with um, a boggy loch side uh, with no infrastructure at all and not even a mobile phone signal. And how the hell do you technically launch, you know, all of those drones from that location? Right. Um, but we, with our production partners, we managed to figure that out. We had to get, you know, line of sight, you know, kind of microwave Wi-Fi pumped down the length of the lock. To give you an idea of how remote it was, you get the, the lock itself was 14 miles long. <laughs> and, to get to the, and to get to the bit of the lock where we were going to be... Yeah. It, we had to drive down a single track road with seven ton trucks and it, it took an hour and a half to get to the point on the lock where we need to be because you had to drive so cautiously and carefully. Anyway, we built all of this infrastructure. We put up, um, each, each of the 150 drones had its own takeoff and landing point that was, that was built above the bog next to the lock. Hey guys, Andy here. I just wanted to take you out of this conversation. Firstly, to say I hope you're enjoying this podcast so far. But secondly, when we were recording this, the memory card in my audio equipment filled up. It reached maximum capacity. And that meant that I couldn't record anymore. And so I know what you're thinking. Amateur hour, Andy. Amateur mistakes. I know. I'll try not to do it again. It probably will happen again at some point, though. Um, and uh, at this point, we've patched in the audio from the Zoom feed. So there's nothing wrong with your headphones. They're not broken. There's nothing wrong with your 4G or your Wi-Fi or whatever you're listening to this on. It's The audio is about to switch up because we're using a different audio source for the rest of my end of the conversation. So I hope you're enjoying this. I'm going to put you back into the conversation now. The audio is going to be slightly different, but bear with it because it's definitely worth it. We'll see you on the other side. Thanks very much. So what is this like? Some sort of like decking or like what, what yeah, stage yeah, flooring? It was, it was truss. It was like a truss system, you know, that you use. You, you would see putting lights on on a, on a stage rig. So it's a truss system, each, and then at different points along these long lengths of truss uh, were these 
you know, plywood platforms that were that were ratchet strapped to the truss and, you know, but then there had to be a control marquee where we could, you know, run our uh, control infrastructure. Then we needed a battery provisioning and drone handling marquee. So all of that had to be built on platforms over the bog. And then we needed a welfare marquee so that all of the staff, we had 40 staff on site for the show yeah. uh, for, the, for the whole week we were there. And then we needed toilets and, you know, transport. We needed accommodation. You know, we needed all of that stuff. Wow. So it was really, really harsh and really took us all to our limits. But we filmed everything for real at the Highlands and then we we filmed all of the locations that we were originally going to go to in Edinburgh, and then we comped uh, footage of the drones in the Highlands into those locations. And so the end piece, we we ended up with three five minute films for Hogmanay, which was the twenty ninth, thirtieth, and thirty first of uh, December. Three five minute films. We ended up pulling this whole thing together with the Scottish poet laureate, a woman called Jackie Kay. She wrote a poem especially for it. We ended up with a bunch of superstars kind of doing the narration, including David Tennant and others. And we ended up with some music that was commissioned from a cult kind of indie electro band from the Isle of Skye called Nightworks. Right. So they wrote a piece of music especially for it. And it, we, we, we kind of created this piece that was this kind of artistic collaboration and endeavour and it, you know, I said right at the beginning of our chat today about logo wear and, you know, how unimaginative it is to put up just a, a logo in the sky, even though it may be transitionally impressive. Yeah. It's not really going to, it's not really going to take you very far. Anyway, we, we created the opposite of that. We created this beautiful story. You know, the first chapter was about the past and how shit this year has been. Second chapter was like, the present regrouping kind of consolidating where you are becoming strong again. And the third chapter was like, where do we go next and how optimistic can we be? And we told that story using all of these beautiful technologies and guess what, you know, like the first project we'd ever done and we got more than 8 million views, uh, across the internet. We got, um, coverage by 650 news outlets around the world. Amazing. Uh, 50 countries with exposure to 2 billion people. Super distro. Um, yes, exactly, right? That's it. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's totally what it was. And, uh, and it, and, and that was our, that was our launch gig. And, um, and it made us realize what we are. Um, so, so Celestial, basically we're a creative agency that uses drones yeah. as opposed to a drone display company. We're a creative agency. Yeah. And we're doing a couple of things now. We're just about to, um, we're going to we're going to be doing a big project for Greenpeace, which is we're just in scripting that at the moment. We're talking to the Royal Mail about um, them you know, changing the perception of the Royal Mail into a future-facing company that uses drones for delivery, and so we're using drones to tell that story. And we're doing some stuff for Am- Amnesty International and a bunch of other things. Is that is that with with Royal Mail? Is that them preempting Amazon's? Uh, move into drone delivery. No, it's funny. We 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 got introduced to Royal Mail by a company called Drone Prep, and Drone Prep uh, went went to Royal Mail as consultants, and they they introduced some technology to Royal Mail for what's called Beyond Visual Line of Sight or BV loss um, delivery of you know using drones for delivery where you can't see where the destination is. Right, and uh, and so. 
they now have a couple of routes that Royal Mail are routinely using to to deliver stuff. Some of it is the kind of live tissue and blood blood samples and all of that stuff. And and they've got this this one route in particular to the Isle of Mull up in Scotland. Right. And um, so actually, weirdly enough, Royal Mail are ahead of Amazon in this country in terms of doing using drones for real deliveries on a regular basis. Right. They are ahead of Amazon. They're the only company really doing it properly here commercially. So they want to do a lot more of that. But I think they also want to rehabilitate the word drone, you know, and we're, we, we're kind of with, with one of our new staff members. Um, we want to propagate this whole hashtag of drones for good. Right. And, uh, and we want to tell that story about, you know, not only can it be a wonderful, you know, uh, entertainment medium, but it can also, you know, do good things for remote communities in different places, you know. And that's be- is this because I understand that one of your, your one of your team members is an ex Ministry of Defence uh, employee. And I don't, we can cut this out if if this is stuff you've told me in confidence. I wouldn't say um, he's ex MOD. What I would say is that there are three founders. So myself, with the background that we've talked about today, you know, it's always been technology and creativity together. Then we've got John Hopkins, who um, is a fantastic filmmaker and he's spent the last 20 years making TV adverts and a feature film really knows how to tell a story really knows immediately, you know, within a few minutes of sitting with a client, how to engage that client with a fantastic idea that completely encapsulates the client's thoughts and ambitions. And then we've got Nick, who's the other original founder with John and Nick has a a background in events, actually events production. So, building those stages at Glastonbury and wherever, right? All of that stuff. But obviously also Nick um, knows how to build drones from the ground up because he worked for a company that was commissioned by the MOD right. to make a, a, a futuristic ride on hover bike, right? Okay. So, so, so uh, yeah, he was hands-on, like literally building that thing um, and got to understand all of the associated drone technologies that were necessary for the flight control systems and for propulsion and all of that stuff. And so because of that, um, you know, he's, he's got an awful lot of experience. It's great, you know, because he's got the events side yeah. as well as, yeah. And for me, it's great because, you know, I've got a bit of filmmaking and I've got the events side because I've toured as a lighting guy. Yeah. Uh, but I've also got the strategy side. And with John, it's the same thing. You know, he's he's got a bunch of filmmaking stuff and creativity. We've got this beautiful Venn diagram of kind of inter- intersection between the three of us mm-hmm. where we've all got, like, specialities, but we all understand one another's uh, kind of operational limitations and challenges because we've all kind of had a foot in those camps as well right that's amazing so when you said that the hashtag why i brought up that that mod kind of things because you said hashtag drones for good and then this is because there's talk is there that drones are militarized and and um and being sort of eyed up as weapons of war is that part of this movement drones for good is you know let's move away from the, the fact that you know they could be very bothersome. And also you've got the whole drone strikes in, in the Middle East, haven't you? Which I, they're not the kinds of drones that, that we're talking about, though, are they? They're very different. Um, yeah, they're very different. But obviously to the, to the general public, then it's just the word drone, isn't it? Yeah. So they, they think drone equals bad. Um, we're, we're trying to address that. So for a start, Celestial, right at the beginning, we decided that we wanted kind of ethical underpinnings that would 
you know, make us all feel good about doing stuff. And that's why, you know, the Hogmanay thing was great because it was a, it was a, it was a story of hope and optimism. Um, Greenpeace is, is great because it's, you know, it's about all of the, the things that you would expect of Greenpeace. So we wanted to make sure that, you know, we did good things. And we, we, one of the things we do is we supersede fireworks, we think, and that's good because it's less carbon going out. It's really a reusable kind of medium and so on. But also we've set up a separate division within the company called um, Human Support. And what we aim to do with Human Support is create uh, mechanisms whereby we can deploy drones to help people with digital signage. So that may be, in the case of a bushfire in California, you know, us putting up the words evacuate now and an arrow pointing to where the hell people should go when the fire is too close. With refugees, for example, on the, you know, the Mexican border with the US, we had a a conversation with uh, one of the, you know, one of the guys in Tucson where one of the big crossings is, you know, for illegal immigration. Mm. And... uh, yeah, there, there, are, there are guys dying in the desert. Uh, there are people, I should say, families dying in that desert as they try and make their way to a better life for lack of water. You know, they can't find water and they perish. Mm-hmm. So why, why not put up 100 drones that says water here, you know, and, <laughs> and pulls, pulls refugees towards where those water... Because they do have big butts of water in the desert for refugees, except the refugees don't know where the hell they are. Right. Right. And and of course, you know, your average Trump supporter wants to go and put a shotgun through those those tanks of water anyway, right? Right. So why not have a, a humanitarian system that says, you know, water here and and save some lives that way? Why not when when it's a conflict zone in Darfur or wherever else, have some more drones that go up and say, you know, landmines danger or border crossing here or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Um, why not when humanitarian aid is about to be dropped in a hostile environment, have some drones up that say aid drop and then a counter that says in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it is, you know, and points people to where the aid is going to land. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All of these things you can do with drones and people are not doing those things with drones and we think we can. Mm. And so, and the more frivolous side of that digital signage piece is that, you know, it doesn't have to be about doom and gloom. Let's say you're at Glastonbury and, and you know what it's like. You constantly miss the act that you want to see <laughs> on the main stage or on one of the smaller stages or whatever. Yeah. How about, you know, a piece of signage, the drones go up, you look into the night sky and it says Billie Eilish pyramid stage, 10 minutes. Yeah. And you, and you, you know, you don't have to kind of keep looking at your phone. The Wi-Fi's dropped out anyway. You know, the, the piece of paper that you scribbled all this stuff is in a muddy puddle somewhere. <laughs> why not just? Why not just look up and go? All oh, right, yeah, Billy Eilish is on in ten minutes. And you Let's can't go. look in your little guardian guide that's on your lanyard around your neck because it's too dark, or you've sweated into it for the, yeah, the past yeah. twelve hours. Yeah, yeah. So digital that digital signage piece is if if we're going to do logo wear, that's going to be the closest we get to it. We want humanitarian messaging. Yeah. And we want kind of, you know, to, to keep people informed when they're in those big events. The potential is infinite, isn't it, really? It's very, yeah, it's good. very, very cool. It's good. So tell me on the on the technical side, you know, um, because um, I th- can we talk about it? Maybe we'll edit it out if, if, 
if we can. But we talked a little bit um, a few months back, probably half a year ago, maybe even more than that now, about using the drones here in Froome to do some sort of alternative um, to the fireworks thing. And we got talking about what sort of things that you would need to do. And I just found the whole process, you know, when you have to let people know about the airspace that you're going to be, um, you're going to be... uh, in what's the word what's the word i'm searching for we're talking about the flight volume where the aircraft are going to be occupied yeah, oh, yeah. The, the airspace that the that is occupied by the yeah swarm. i thought yeah. that was fascinating i thought that the the fact that you know you're looking for those those areas of, of elevation or where you would have a good uh place to to launch them i find the the software that you must be using is you know is that a closely guarded secret is that stuff owned by you or what what's What's going on there on the technical aspect of things? So there's a few things. So first, we took it, talking about the you know where the event takes place. There's a there's a whole bunch of stuff that you need to do to kind of ensure safety of the crowd and safety of property. So there are there are a couple of different perimeters. In the middle of all of that stuff, you've got what's called the the the, the flight volume, and that's the area of 3D space where the drones are going to be operating. Underneath the flight volume, you need a sterile zone. And that means that people who are not directly, you know, involved in the operational execution should not be. No public, no one can, no dog walkers walking through, whatever you can't. That's yeah. it's completely sterile. Outside the um, flight volume is the contingency volume. And that's the area you have a geofence wrapped around. And if the drones breach that geofence, it kind of triggers a certain behavior. Right. So typically, if a drone touches that geofence, it will tell the drone that it needs to return to home immediately. And then outside the contingency volume, you've got what's called the buffer zone. And again, there's another geofence at the edge of the buffer zone. And that has a different behavioral trigger for the drones. And that would, for example, trigger what we call euphemistically an uncontrolled descent. Right. And what that means is it turns the engines off and it falls out of the sky. So you've got these different areas with different kind of virtual fences around them to ensure, you know, things go the right way. And by the way, you know, it never happens. And we've tried over and over again to make a drone breach any of those fences and we just can't do it. Right. So, you know, it's, it's an incredibly safe system that we've got. But coming back to your original point, you know, what do we use? Is it top secret software? What is it? We use a collection of different pieces of software, actually. The, the main flight control software comes from uh, a vendor um, over in Eastern Europe, in Latvia. But we, we also, in order to get our animations into that software, we use, you know, another four or five different bits of software and we have to kind of move stuff through those bits of software in order to get them into the control software at the end. It's a very unwieldy, unpleasant, technically challenging process. Um, and because of that, we are going to be developing our, well, we are, I think from next month, we start our development cycle and we're going to be building our own drone control software um, that will do the whole thing from beginning to end and will be far more user-friendly and uh and that will be that will end up being one of the revenue streams of the company. So what's going to happen with the drone market overall is this. It's a premium market right now. Uh, we can charge a lot of money for a show because very few people can do that show. As time passes, let's say two years down the road, 
is going to be somewhat commoditized as as all technologies are. And that means that more people are going to be able to chuck a few drones up in the air for a 21st birthday party and they'll charge, you know, accordingly, not very much money. So what we're going to do is we'll, uh, as that commoditization takes place, we're going to exploit that and give people um, the drone control software that will allow them to build uh, easy-to-deploy uh, shows in a far more economical way than is currently the case. We will, I hasten to add, continue to innovate as Celestial. So a couple of years down the road, we will still be doing the marquee events. We will still be doing the Glastonbury's. We'll still be doing world tours with different artists and stuff like that. But at the other end of the spectrum will be this, you know, my daughter's 21st birthday party. Let's get 50 drones up in a heart shape with her name in it or whatever. Um, And that will be a couple of blokes in a transit van using our software to launch those drones. That's where it'll be. Amazing. So... So your so your income is gonna is gonna shift primarily from being the exclusive provider of, of of these shows with the drones to licensing out your software. I think so. Yeah, I mean, there'll be like I say, there'll probably be half a dozen uh, marquee events that we might do a year as uh, yeah in, in a couple of years time, two or three years time. That's where it'll be. But those marquee events will will charge two or three million quid for right. So that'll right. be. That's one part of the business. Yeah. Instead of doing, you know, 20 shows, we'll do six. Yeah. But they'll be very high-value shows. It might be the Olympics or it might be the World Cup or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And then, yeah, the other end of the spectrum, we will sell 10,000 copies of our software around the world to blokes with transit vans who want to put up Happy Birthday Lucy, you know. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it's just been, you've just been one step ahead at all times. Big thank you to this week's guest, Tony Martin. We are going to leave uh, all relevant links to things that uh, Tony has talked about in the show notes descriptions. There you will find things on Celestial. You will find things on the Hacienda, probably. Uh, If we can get some of his music in there, we will. Uh, And anything related to this pod that we think is of interest will go in the show notes descriptions. Please like, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really, really helps. If you've got a friend that you think will enjoy this podcast, then please send it to them. If you want to follow the podcast on social media, you can. It is at the Giant Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow my Instagram as well at Andy underscore S1S. This podcast was produced by the Madchester lad, Harry Williams. Uh, we will see you next week on the Giant Pod. Thanks very much.